the theme we've had as we've worked through the book of Acts has been that this is a revolution. It is a revolution of God's kingdom breaking into the world. It is uh, a foretaste of what will be for all of us our full experience in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but it starts now and the, the realities of it, uh, the differences of it begin to break into uh, this first century uh, little town of Jerusalem. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out, all of the promises that Christ uh, had, uh, had given the disciples about the strength and the power and the newness of a temple, a dwelling place of God that would be made of human beings, no longer a building, no longer isolated, but even more intimate than ever imagined. Uh, all of the promises and the hopes of the prophets, all of the expectations of someone like Hannah crying out for the presence of the Lord and for those deepest needs to be met, to be able to worship, to be able to be at peace, to be able to know the goodness and the power of God. And inherently what that means is a transformation of the existing order. And that transformation both uh, recognizes the value of the past, but now the past is obsolete in light of the new reality. It's not a judgment on the past. It is the right transformation from the past to the present. The problem is, of course, there's always folks who like the past, who hold on to it and remember it fondly, who rightly see its strengths. It's always a transition to go from what we've known to what God is doing anew and afresh. This morning we run into one of those folks who was having a bit of a difficulty understanding what the implications of the newness of Christ were for he and his people. Let's put the text in front of us. It is Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to read uh, the first couple of verses. Hear now God's word. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that, he, uh, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell on the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they held him by the hand, uh, so they led him by the hand uh, into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a familiar story. Lord, many of us have heard it since our youth. And we know that it is a story of your power, your grace. 
And Lord, what it means to be transformed by a vision of you. We ask this morning that we might see this story afresh again, uh, Lord, but also in the same great ways we have known it for years. We pray that your people might be encouraged as we reflect upon your word. And whatever is said that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. So, one of the ideas in our society and culture is that we achieve something by visualization, right? It is this idea that if you can see your goals and you visualize them and you pursue them, uh, that you can accomplish them. And it's a good idea to have a clear vision of where you want to go. Uh, In the intertestamental period, in the midst of all of the tragedy, there was a corporate way in which the children of Israel used to visualize what they wanted to see. They would reflect, the scholars tell us, individually, in times of prayer and meditation, often fasting, they would meditate on a passage in the Old Testament. They would go back to the opening chapter of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's amazing description of the throne room of God, its power, its glory. It is an amazing passage that reflects things like uh, a jeweled throne and a beautiful uh, rainbow surrounding that throne. Actually, many things, of course, later on echoed in Revelation. It is a beautiful, amazing passage that overwhelms, that unpacks in even greater degrees the the very tight description that Isaiah gives us in that passage we use uh, from Isaiah 6. It is a glorious passage. And the goal, the desire was in the midst of our season where we feel the absence of the Lord. The prophets have been silent for hundreds of years. We have lived basically under one form of oppression or another. Yes, there was a little intertestamental period with the Maccabees, but basically we have been under the thumb. We have not known the presence of the Lord in the temple. The Spirit of the Lord left the temple, and we wonder if it's ever coming back. The desire was in those times of meditation, of visualization, to reflect, to meditate over and over again on this amazing passage in Ezekiel 1 in the hopes that by the Spirit they might have a glimpse into the very throne room of grace, into the power of God. And though they couldn't imagine seeing God Himself, just to know that you were in that space was something that drove the most devout those who desired to know and to see the glory of their God in the midst of what seemed to be God's absence. Paul knew this. Saul was trained in the best school, in the deepest, richest hopes of Israel. He was well-versed like you and I could scarcely imagine in the visions and the knowledge of the Old Testament, the expectations and the hopes of a God who would return. He was steeped in an understanding of what the temple meant and his desire to see the temple filled again with the glory and the purity, the holiness and the otherness of God. That building, that structure and that vision of God manifested 
in the presence of His people, heaven and earth joined. The temple was that place that heaven and earth joined where God was with His people. Heaven is simply the place where God dwells. And the amazing thing about the promises of Scripture was, of course, time and time again, God would say things like He desired to dwell with His people. The temple was that place. But Israel had known for generations that the glory of the Lord had left the temple. Paul and his his group of folks, the Pharisees, were not simply desiring to have fun by telling everybody in the streets what they could do and uh, in the great traditions of uh, comedy uh, and overstatement, you know, whacking people if they walked more than 17 steps. I heard an interesting thing about all of those Sabbath regulations and the structures underneath them as I was reading recently, they were all designed, interestingly enough, to embrace the reality of eternal Sabbath. What does it mean to rest? What does it mean to really and truly rest? To live in the midst of the promised Sabbath. Not a motivation to see who could earn their way to heaven. They were never motivated as a way to earn God's favor, interestingly enough. They were meant to embody the reality of Sabbath and to help people experience Sabbath. Now, tragically, as often happens with rules, they began to be used as a way to restrict and to abuse the people. But Paul, Saul, and his people, his Pharisees, his ilk, were driven by a desire to see the rightness of God restored, the presence of the Lord in his temple. And Paul had categories as Saul, of how that would happen. Well-established, exegetically sound, really exegetically sound. The hermeneutics were brilliant. They understood the visions of the Old Testament. They understood the implications of the day of the Lord. And they longed for it even though they knew the warnings of the prophets. They wanted to see the temple restored and the people purified. And they had an understanding of how that would happen. And then Jesus came. And he rewrote all of those expectations. He undermined some of the fundamental hermeneutics. And Saul was struggling with the new information. Now I say that because it's easy sometimes for us to perhaps think we understand Saul's motives. Or perhaps we can judge Saul's motives as he persecuted the church, as he pursued people from Jerusalem to Damascus. And I want to suggest that we can actually really understand Saul because all of us at various times in our lives have had some of the truths that we build our life on undermined and radically Changed and it can create a real sense of fear and anxiety and a condemnation of those who are undermining our understanding. When believers are turned into doubters, they can become very unnerved. The fear of seeing that shift can become something that causes us to do things we never thought we'd do, say things we never thought 
we'd say. I don't mean this to justify Paul, and he certainly would never justify himself. It's only Christ that justifies. But I think we have to at least take into account that when the radical nature of the creator of the universe taking on the very substance of humanity, being joined to us, being joined to matter, willing to be sacrificed on a cross, stripped naked and humiliated, everything that defeat looks like Jesus embraces and comes through the other side. It is no wonder that Saul, who wanted to see a vision of the holiness of God, which included an emerald throne, holiness so other that the very doorposts shake and smoke fills the very presence so that the cherubim that fly around and the seraphs, their wings make the sound of the ocean roaring and the winds, that power, that grandeur, that glory. A guy nailed to a cross between two rebels. The two images don't fit. So often it is easy for me to take on the ideas of this world's understanding of what the Christian faith is and to be so enamored that I lose sight of the fullness of the text, the fullness of the gospel. Right? We could, as we're discussing uh, and praying for unity within the church, and uh, I was touched by Carrie's description of, of the questions that a lot of the text-critical people asked. Not all of them set out to undermine Scripture. They set out to understand Scripture and to use their skills to do so. And as they did, sadly, some of the arrogance of their own time gave them a sense that they were somehow smarter and more developed than some of the New Testament writers, and they began to disparage their views about things like miracles or things like literal resurrection. But there was a real spirit that they wanted to embrace. They wanted to embrace the ethic of love. They wanted to embrace the ethic of justice. And they thought that there was a way in which one could divorce that from the realities of a God who messed with his creation and kept sticking his finger in the pie. What they found is that there is no ethic of love and justice without the king who is willing to get nailed to a cross. That it doesn't last. That that ethic unmoored doesn't maintain its strength. And in fact, some of their critique of the scripture, and I always smile about this, is that when I was going to seminary, nobody thought in certain text-critical uh, sections of quote-unquote the liberal church that any of the Gospels were written before 70 AD. And now all of the scholarship basically shows that all of the had to have been written before 70 AD. Their own scholarship ended up proving the veracity of the text, which is why we should also not be terribly afraid when people come up with new ideas. If it's true, it'll help. If it's not, eh, it won't last long. Nobody believes in New Testament scholarship anymore that the Gospels had to be written in the 100s. Because it's true. And it can survive even the most rigorous and uh, misapplied searches. But in the same way, 
the conservative church in its fear as scripture was undermined in their understanding. And as they began to criticize their liberal brothers, quote unquote, and sisters with their objection to the text, they ended up increasingly with a commitment to a text that was having less and less dynamic impact in the kingdom ways in which their liberal brothers and sisters seemed to think were important. And what we've seen over time is some of the tragedies that as we fought the orthodoxy wars and as we fought to maintain the integrity of the text and as we fought not to do certain social changes, we found that perhaps those texts that talk about the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien at the gate might have been taken to heart a little bit more deeply in our application as a church within this culture. That some of the realities about truth and justice and mercy for women, for African Americans, for Native Americans, for those wrestling with sexual identity, those ways in which generosity and mercy could be extended even as there needed to be correction and discipleship. Where was that generosity and love to those who were going through the pain of divorce? Those coming back from and coming to faith after having an abortion. Was there mercy? Was there grace? Was there acceptance? Was there a place to be broken? These are generalizations. Individual lives within the church have always expressed those tensions well. But as these cultures change, you're going, okay, how far away from the text are we going to get? We're coming back. Paul wrestles with who Jesus is. And it undermines his understanding of how to read Scripture. And my encouragement is that as we reflect on Paul, as he has to see Jesus as clearly represented as possible for him to recognize both his own errors and the hope of the kingdom, that our only hope is to pray for that vision of Jesus as well and understand that we may at one moment see the glory and the beauty of a God whose very presence shakes the foundations of the earth, or it may be in the presence of someone so unsightly that you would scarcely want to look at them, and in that you see the power of God. It's not up to us how God is revealed in Scripture. It is not up to us how God helps us see the difference between His kingdom, the fullness of what He meant to do, and our own tendencies to adopt views that at the moment fill our needs or comfort us in our season of grief or our desires for more. See, what saves Paul, what transforms Paul in his blindness towards his own uh, limited view is getting a sense and the presence and a revelation of the fullness of who God is. Is it any wonder that Paul regularly then the rest of his life talks about things like presenting Christ, all I desired to know before you, was Christ and Him crucified. Everything Paul does is to point to the glorious revelation of Jesus Himself. Because it was the presence of Jesus in the fullness and the richness that both affirmed everything the Old Testament had said and yet fundamentally changed the way Paul read all of those books.
It was both a complete affirmation and a complete revelation at the same time. Because he saw Jesus. It is that gift that the Gospels and the Apostles who wrote the uh, other letters give us an opportunity to see the fullness of who Jesus is. To desire to see his glory and his power and his humility. To know both and to have that be the lens by which we read our own lives. By which we care for one another. And by which we see the world transformed by this revolution of a God whose glory and again, I encourage you this afternoon, go back and read Ezekiel chapter 1. A powerful, powerful and disturbing text. And then to put that up against the vision of Paul, who knew Jesus was crucified, who was alive during the crucifixion, who was probably in Jerusalem, who saw the stoning of Stephen, and interestingly and ironically enough, Supported the stoning of Stephen as Stephen said, I see heaven opened up. And then Paul got a glimpse. And his life was never the same. May we pray for, may we encourage one another through the reading of God's word, through the fellowship that we have, and even through times of prayer and fasting, that we might see Jesus more clearly. That's what conversion is about. Seeing the beauty of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity that makes sense of the Holy Spirit and the Father and brings it all into intimate relief, intimate revelation and transformation. I don't know Jesus very well. I want to know him better. My life is not as shaped by the presence and the fullness of Christ as I would like. I know he knows me perfectly. My hope is that for us, we might know Jesus as well as he knows us and that we might encourage one another in the beauty of who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. We thank you for the revelation. Lord, all of the imagery here, gosh, we could camp out on the three days and the faithfulness of that. We could delve even deeper into the vision of the second person of the Trinity sitting at the right hand of the Father. The words that you said, dear Jesus, why are you persecuting me? The fact that we are so connected to you that you feel our pain when the world strikes against us. Lord, there is so much in this passage, but we know that it all comes clear when we see you. May we do so in ever greater degrees. Amen.